Welcome to the Michelle Miao Show, your A through Z, covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between. Welcome to our Thursday program at the Commonwealth Club, in which I'm joined by my co-host, John Zipper. Hey, Michelle. Welcome. Every Thursday, we're here doing the, a special taping for the Progressive Voices Network. And so this show will air today, 4 o'clock Pacific Standard Time, on Progressive Voices Network. And then Commonwealth Club shares it on their website. So if you want to go back and refer to it or if you have to leave early, you can catch the rest of the program there. So very exciting this entire month. We are focusing on immigration issues. A couple weeks ago, we touched on some, the public charge regulation, and there had been uh, some proposals to change it from the administration, and they have since posted what those changes are. And so we learned from that talk that now is the time to contribute to public comments. We have 60 days, and if we overwhelm them with enough public comments, those changes may not happen. Today, we're going to focus on family separation with two very, very special people, human beings, who are doing incredible work. They are both attorneys. We have Christina McKibben, who's an immigration attorney from Sacramento, and we have Jason Sias, who is also a, uh, an attorney specializing in civil rights cases. Let's welcome them both to the program. Christina, Jason, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. Yeah, um, there's a lot that we can ask. But first, let's get to know you and kind of, you know, your own personal journey in wanting to be a part of the work that you do. So what made you wake up one day and say, uh, I want to be an immigration attorney? And we'll start with Christina. That's funny. I don't think I ever had an aha moment. Um, but I'm from the Central Valley, and so in Modesto, a lot of my community is Mexican, Cambodian, Laotian. Um, it's really a melting pot of, of all kinds of cultures that I don't think the rest of the country really has the privilege of getting to know. And so when I went to law school in Boston, I joined the Asylum and Human Rights Clinic, and that was when I really got to see how we treat people coming from all over the world and really trying to um, surrender themselves to our immigration process. And um, I haven't really left it since. That's what I dedicated my life to. Jason. Yeah, um, my mom is actually from another country. And it, I can't say that it started when I was a kid. It actually started when I started working. And um, talking to my mom and just seeing how it was affecting her and from her perspective. And then it kind of translated through work. Um, originally, I started off doing some criminal defense work along with civil rights. And it was really a case review that I did with um, a mom who was separated from her child. She'd been here since she was like 10 months old, so she didn't know any other place. And I reviewed the record, and it blew my mind, on, one, on the advice that the attorney gave at the time, the criminal defense attorney, and the fact that he would tell her to go ahead and take this plea, which clearly he didn't think about if it had any other consequences other than the criminal side. Um, and so it just kind of got me thinking like, wow, how many attorneys really do this? And I started talking to my colleagues and I found out a lot of them never, ever referred to like a, uh, immigration attorney to find out are there other effects. And so we've kind of rededicated our purpose at our firm to help with that. So there's a lot of stuff that attorneys working with immigration can do. One of the reasons, of course, we want to talk to you today has to do with the border stuff. Um, and the church family separation. Lead us from what you've been doing day to day to your involvement in, in the border stuff. So I'm an immigration attorney, so day to day this is, I'm immersed in um, connecting people with relief, either on the interior, 
um, trying to defend an immigration court. And so I am defending immigrants from almost the L.A. area all the way up to Sacramento. And there really aren't a lot of immigration attorneys, even in California. And so I am constantly driving up and down California and representing all of these immigrants where there, there are only two immigration courts that are available to my clients, and that is here in San Francisco and down in L.A., and so um, that's kind of my day to day is trying to defend people from having to be removed from the country when they do have some form of relief to be here, um, defending against detention. So if they're unnecessarily detained, um, which, in my opinion, in immigration is always unnecessary because it's completely separate and apart from the criminal justice system. Um, and so that that is my my day to day. And the border work um, we got involved in because I uh, I wanted to get us involved in litigation. And so I represent a lot of unaccompanied minors. Um, I have about three dozen unaccompanied minors that I represent, especially in the Central Valley. And there were all of these violations of children being detained at the border. And that was here in our own backyard in California. And so we went down to San Ysidro, to the Customs and Border Protection facility. Um, but the only reason we were permitted, even as attorneys, to be allowed to enter and ask questions of these children was because we were attorneys and we were entering as part of open litigation. And so even as an attorney, an immigration attorney going in and trying to visit people that are detained, you are not necessarily permitted to do that. And so it's this really opaque system that I wanted to get to know a little bit better. You, you mentioned the immigration being system being detention being separate from the criminal yes. system, but how is it separate when they're detained, they're, they're unable to meet with, you know, people are unable to get in there to see? I mean, it, how is it different from a prison? Um, actually, I think Jason would be great at answering this because he does do um, criminal detention. But when I say it's unnecessary, it doesn't really serve a public benefit to detain all of these people on a daily basis. Um, when we do have a criminal justice system that would be available to respond. So if there really was a public safety threat, we do have local law enforcement that could respond and we have people that can go and arrest and detain and we have a criminal justice system um, where you know we would be able to prosecute them if they were committing a crime but the vast majority of these people i mean we have what like over 12,000 children that are detained right now and we're paying $725 if not more a day to detain them you could put them all through Harvard for far less than that wow. you really could this is a $2 billion industry that is just, that's what I mean. It's, it's entirely unnecessary to fund that. So I think one of the biggest differences, um, the United States of America is built on a lot of different core values, but one of them is the fact that they don't, we're not supposed to detain people for a certain period of time um, without seeing a judge. So in the criminal side, you have statutory rights, like upon an initial arrest, you have the right to see a judge within 48 hours. That's not the same for immigration detainees. Um, those statutes, from what I've started to gather, run anywhere from you know 10 days to, it just depends on where you are in the, in the process. Um, but a lot of these detainees are staying beyond those periods and they don't have any recourse. Whereas in criminal court, you can say, hey, my client is still detained, you have to let him go. And guess what, the courts will let him go. Um, in the immigration world, it's different hey, your honor, um, my client's still being detained. He's like, okay, and? And you're sitting there like, well, what do you mean and, right? But the immigration world, is it's 
it's its own animal. I, I, I used to formally think that the criminal justice system, as bad as it is, I always thought was the worst system in the United States because it, it doesn't really um, promote, um, not, re, not um, what's the word, I'm like, readjustment back into society. But the immigration system is far worse because not only do the clients usually don't have the right to speak, but even the attorneys don't even have the right to speak, and that's what's different also. So um, from, the, from the housing part portion of the criminal justice system is defined by, like, sheriffs and uh, sheriffs run their systems there. And immigration is private detention centers. Um, they're usually always for-profit. Um, so that's one of the other major differences. As we're seeing this, you know, it, for some of us who are now paying attention to the immigration issues, we might be thinking that, you know, this is happening right now. It's only happening during uh, this president's administration. But if we're hearing you correctly, the, it has been broken for some time. Uh, what is the difference, though? Like, how has your life changed since, you know, practicing immigration law or also uh, representing from the criminal justice side? You know, how does that change? Because it feels like it has changed overnight. Yeah. Um, so I don't know if it's changed overnight, but it's definitely been ramping up to the point where we've had these systems that were built to detain immigrants in for-profit facilities, where from the 50s to the early 80s, I think we had 30 people detained in immigration detention. And now we have the space for over 41,000, and that's growing. Um, and again, these are a lot of the... A third of these are children, um, their families, and these Texas facilities that are being built are on military bases. And so what I see now is facilities being built on military bases so that states cannot come investigate the detention conditions um, the way that we do here in California. And so when it's built on a military base, they don't they also are not subject to certain um, inspection requirements from from other agencies, oversight agencies. And so there's no way to tell if they're taking care of the children the way that they should be. So this tent city in Tornillo, Texas right now, for example, um, it's growing to five times the size that it was in the beginning. And um, it's being operated by defense contractors that were really set up to um, provide security in Afghanistan and that sort of thing. And that, that feels new. This is all new. And so we're watching that. Um, we're watching this administration place this impossible choice um, where it's either children remain detained beyond the regulatory statute, uh, the regulatory period that is set to protect them where they have to be released after 20 days. Um, so either you release them or you keep them detained together with their parents. And so that's also a new kind of impossible choice that's been presented by this administration is what are you going to do? Are you going to hold us to this standard where you have to release the child and we can do that and separate them from their parents? Or are you going to um, say we need to keep families together and we'll just detain them indefinitely? And so that, that I would say is, is definitely new and that's happening right now. I think in addition to that, and Christina can correct me where I'm wrong, but there's been a, a greater emphasis on types of crimes that they're going back through people's records and they're saying, hey, I guess I should preface this by saying there's a difference between what we know as a criminal felony and then what's considered an aggregated felony in immigration system. Um, there may be crimes that are misdemeanors that we know of where, you know, people will take a plea. They're like, oh, I'll just I won't have to go to jail because it's not a big deal. 
like, for example, um, I think shoplifting is one. Well, in the immigration world, that carries a, a, a much greater consequence because they treat it like a felony. So what I, what I have seen is people who have these past crimes that may have had plea deals back in the 80s, the 90s, even the 70s, they're going back in and saying, hey, this person committed an aggregated felony. This person should be deported. So then they are um, being put back into removal proceedings based on something they did you know, 20 years ago, which at that time didn't have the same effect that it did today. So I think this administration is just kind of turning back the hands of time and going back through people to, to put people on the deportation list. And that includes people with status. So not just undocumented people, but people with green cards or, you know, um, people that are in protected status. They are subject to these restrictions where they can be mandatorily detained. And that's without a hearing. Um, that's that was just argued at the Supreme Court. Um, and we're expecting a decision on mandatory detention, but it doesn't look good for immigrants waiting for hearings. I, two weeks ago, I said I wanted to vomit today. I don't really know what I'm feeling. Um, but let's fast forward to the decision to volunteer to go to Texas. Uh, you know, the president had announced that and, and the attorney general, uh, the zero tolerance policy. And we saw in the media photos, videos, uh, emotionally traumatized by what we were seeing, which is the separation of families. And then, of course, uh, many people uh, responded in a lot of ways uh, from Facebook and its viral sharing. You saw that people contributed to a campaign to racist refugee and immigrants, uh, immigrant center for education and legal services is their full name. And they raised over $20 million to go to uh, this family to reunite families. So I'm just giving some context uh, to help with how you got to the decision to say, maybe we need more beyond that. And these families need representation. We need something else other than to be re reunited. Yeah, there was there was a specific moment. I remember we were in San Ysidro and we were interviewing um, a kid that had been held longer than he should have under law. Um, and he was trying to get us to call his parents. And we couldn't do that. Um, because we were there as part of this investigation for open litigation. And so all of our questions had to be, um, you know, how are you being treated? So what we learned from him is he was being held without the ability to call his parent. Um, he didn't speak a language that any of us in the room could speak. It was a rare language. And so we had to find someone kind of through phone a friend. Um, it was like a friend of a friend of a friend that spent two hours on speakerphone trying to help translate that he had been held in a freezing cold room. He was really sick when we met him. Um, he didn't recognize the food that he was being fed, so he was trying to describe it to me. And he said, it's a, it's a tortilla with like something this color. And he kept pointing to the case file. I don't know if you remember this, but he's, he was just like, it's not a meat, it's not a vegetable, it's this. And it was essentially beans. He was trying to describe like brown beans. He's eating that every day. Um, he was not given water, so he was shut in, in this hole for 23 hours a day, and he had to drink from above the toilet. There's like an attached sink where he was sharing this toilet with seven other kids, and he just started bawling, and he said, every day they come in, they take other kids away, but they don't take me, and I don't understand why. And then he said, they take me to the back room, and they yell at me and ask me what mosque I pray at. And so there, there was just all kinds of concerns that we had. And I remember him looking at me and they, they came in and they said, we have transport orders. We have to take him now. So they start taking him away. Sorry. 
this makes me kind of emotional still. They start taking him away. And he says, is this okay? Are they going to beat me for speaking to you? And there was nothing that we could do in that moment. And with his file number, we could not locate him because he was a minor. And so he disappears into the system. And it's just such a helpless feeling to see that happening. And we knew that these other kids out here were actually available for us to go defend. And that was at these Texas detention facilities where they were being reunited with their parents. Um, and so that was our defining moment. Like, we must go out here and do this. There are very few family detention facilities in the country. We fundraised on our own because people were energized. Um, they wanted to help. They wanted to do something. And there were these images that were just visceral, you know, abuses by this government, separating people at the border as a deterrent. Um, this is essentially... Um, what the Trump administration said was they wanted to implement a zero tolerance policy, which is we are going to put you in U.S. Marshal custody if you enter in this country. And this is in violation of all kinds of laws like international law or asylum laws. You can apply for asylum anywhere in this country. You don't have to ask for a visa in advance. You, you are fleeing for your life. The law is such that you come and you ask for asylum. And so people were told that if you don't present yourself at a specific port of entry, you are going to be criminalized. We're going to um, charge you with a federal misdemeanor. The U.S. Marshal will take you into custody. We will take your child away from you. And then um, people were being lied to and being told, thank you, that they would not see their children again unless they signed away their right to asylum. They sign away their due process. And so that's what was happening at the time where we were raising money and thinking about how we, with the privilege of a law degree, can go in and do something. And so that's what we did. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, she pretty much said it all. I, for me, because I, I didn't deal with the day-to-day -day of immigration, I, I wanted to know, you know, what happens next? Because you don't as someone from the outside, you really don't know. Like, you hear about this one big thing, kids being separated from families, okay, and then they're being put back together, and you're like, oh, well, that's good. So so you think that's good, but no, because they're, they're being put together in this facility, and you don't really understand that, yes, they're being reunited, but look at the conditions that they're living in. I mean, this isn't really reunited. You're imprisoning them, you know. I don't know if you can call that reunification, right, because you're essentially putting them in a jail cell. Um, so I wanted to know what happened, what happens next. And I think, and I'm sure we'll get into what happened while we're there, but having been there, it kind of created a new interest of trying to, trying to use this law degree that we have the privilege of having, you know, for, for better good, because I mean, what's the point if, if we're not trying to help others, you know, that's the whole point of being a lawyer, you know, to advocate for those who can't advocate for themselves, even when the system tries to oppress you so that you can't advocate for them, because that's what we experience. And, you know, and I think coming from a different background, maybe I'm naive, but I, I'll speak up because that's what I was trained to do. Uh, I mean, I've been in court situations where I'm like, you know, what, if the judge wants to hold me in contempt, so be it. But someone's got to say something. Um, and so I, I, I want to bring that to this field. And um but that's that's got us there. Don't go away. The Michelle Meow Show continues right after this. The Commonwealth Club is a unique organization that brings together people from a variety of backgrounds to explore important issues as a community. Sooner or later, everyone worth hearing comes to our stage. From Marga Gomez to Richard Chamberlain, from James Hormel to Kate Kendall, 
leading thinkers, activists, politicians, and artists have come to the Commonwealth Club of California. Ted Olson and David Boyes came here to discuss their winning legal strategy for same-sex marriage. Jason Collins talked about gay athletes. The Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence discussed activism and good works. Actor and director Rob Reiner explained how he got Hollywood behind same-sex marriage. Barney Frank described what it's like to be gay at the highest levels of Washington. From healthcare reform to transgender rights, from immigration to gay-owned businesses, it's all at the Commonwealth Club. And that's still just a portion of the 450 programs we present every single year, with new programming nearly every single day. Be a part of the conversation. Learn more at commonwealthclub.org, download our free app in iTunes, and join us in person the next time you're in San Francisco. The Commonwealth Club of California puts you face-to-face with today's thought leaders. Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? (laughs) Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. Go ahead, John. Um, Thank you both of you for all you do before we, we get into uh, the, the discussion. I just want to take a, a moment to, to ref, you know, to say, to say, thank you. Like uh, God or the universe, you <laughs> both are gifts uh, against evil. Right. Yeah. Um, so you fundraise to get yourselves down to Texas and I had mentioned races. I mean, a lot of people who gave to the organization really th- in, in, in some ways thought that that was all going to reuniting the families. And then, it, like you had said, didn't address what happens next. And so these families need representation now, yes. right? And so how did you get paired with the det- detention facility in Carnes, Texas? So there are very few facilities, like I said, that that do family detention. And Raices has worked over the past few years to get in. So they have an office inside. And what they do um, at the Carnes facility that we went to, which is fathers and sons that have been reunited, um, is they provide kind of like know your rights um, trainings inside. And then they try to get declarations together so people can articulate their fear of returning to their country, which oftentimes people aren't able to articulate it within the really complex asylum law um, that they're required to. And that's that you're afraid to return to your country, that your government is either unwilling or unable to protect you. um, And that the reason that you were harmed was based on a protected ground. So your religion, your nationality, um, that you're part of a particular social group, it's really complex. And so, um, essentially at this stage, when you're detained in Carnes, you have to be able to articulate a credible fear of returning to your country. And so that's what Raices was doing. And if you present yourself at the port of entry, like you are told you're supposed to, um, you're not eligible for bond. And so you're sitting in there and you're completely at the mercy of, um, 
of ICE and the asylum office to give you a positive, uh, credible fear finding um, in order to get paroled out. And so that's why it's just indefinite detention until they're able to articulate that fear um, or they're deported. And so that's kind of, it's one or the other. And ISIS is, is like the first face they see when they get in there. Um, but what they really needed was attorneys to come in and defend people that were not getting these, these credible fear findings or that weren't able to even get seen to have a hearing. So earlier, Jason said that we were not able to speak. Immigration attorneys are able to speak in other proceedings, but there were very specific proceedings at the border where if you are found not to have a credible fear, um, then you are put in front of a judge and that judge usually will rubber, rubber stamp that decision and then you're deported. You have no rights. And so that's where we came in and we sat into these proceedings and we actually had a judge for quite a few of these hearings that permitted us to do closing argument, which was helpful um, because some of these people were not able to articulate their credible fear because they spoke an indigenous language and no one was able to help them communicate that fear. Um, and these were fathers also who had been ripped apart from their sons. And so for two months were in there, not knowing where their sons were. Some of them reported to us that they were unable to articulate anything to anyone because they were like fed something they couldn't recognize every day, which we learned was a frozen ham sandwich for literally every day that they were in there. And so they started breaking out in rashes. Um, a couple of the fathers tried to participate in a hunger strike because they were very political in the countries that they were fleeing from. Um, and the SWAT team, they described it as men with shields coming in the middle of the night, disappearing people that were sharing bed space with them. Um, and then trying to get to the bottom of who was at the, who was inspiring them to participate in these hunger strikes. And if you did not go with the flow, the, that's the words that they were told, um, they would be re-separated from their children or they just wouldn't see their children at all. And so they were kind of shuffled around the country to all of these detention facilities. And so um, one guy, I think he told us he had been to five or six different detention facilities since May um, and we were there late August and he had no idea where his son was and his son was five years old and they took his son to another room, completely disappeared him and we were barely able to meet with him to help him articulate this fear in court. And so we got a very rare, um, it's called a, a motion to vacate that we made um, and we got a very rare success where he was able to overturn his removal order because he had originally not been able to articulate his fear. And so he got released to California recently. And so now we're starting the process with him of actually trying to do his full asylum proceeding. But um, yeah, just inside the facility, it's really surreal. You walk in, it, a lot of our group described it as Disneyland because we walked in and people are, it's really brightly lit. There's baby blue all over the walls. It almost looks like an elementary school. Um, there's all of this propaganda on the walls, like thank you for working at um, Geo Group. Let us know if you're pregnant so you get your corporate gift. Like just really happy, surreal energy. And then you go to the back and there's a glass wall where all of these men are just lined up desperate to talk to someone. And so you see the reality of what this place is. And it's very much a compound where there's uh, security like following us to our cars to make sure we are, as soon as we exit the building that we are not like, I don't know, smuggling taking people pictures. out, who knows? Yeah, taking pictures. We weren't allowed to uh, 
video record ourselves in front announcing to people that had donated what we were doing there. Um, it was just a really surreal, surreal experience. And it exposed a lot about how we don't need to just fund um, educational programs. We really need to dismantle this system as a whole. This should not be happening. One of the surreal scenes that I think everyone has seen in the news was of this three-year-old kid in court with no one representing him and, and the judge asking questions that, I mean, this kid obviously should not have been there. Um, what was going on there? Why was that taking place? What on earth did they, was that some pro forma thing they had to go through? Did they think this kid was going to stand up and give an awesome speech? I mean, what on earth was going on and what type of person would do that to a kid? Yeah, I think that highlights the difference um, between immigration court and our actual Article Three courts under the Constitution. And so you may have heard in the news a lot of immigration judges just begging for independence, judicial independence, and that's because Department of Justice hires the immigration judges. So their boss is Jeff Sessions, the Attorney General. And if they make so many decisions granting relief, you know, he's watching them, um, not just for completion goals, but for the substance of their decisions now. And he's been referring himself cases that have a good outcome. And so really the due process is laughable. There, there is such a lack of due process and it's not subject to the same um, due process that we have in our Article Three courts. And that's really disturbing. And so you will see children, often there are dockets that are all unaccompanied minors and children have to go state their name and they're supposed to articulate what kind of relief they're going to apply for, which I just kind of outlined what asylum looks like. It is really complex. And without an attorney, even adults, I think it's like 80 to 90% of them are deported if they try to defend themselves in these in asylum. And so, um, yeah, there's, there's a lot that needs to be done, but I think that image, which it really spoke to people and highlighted what immigration attorneys have known for a long time, which is there is really no due process. And a lot of what um, even like criminal defendants have a right to a government appointed attorney, we don't have that in immigration court. How many cases did you take on while in Carnes? And then what were the, uh, the outcomes? I think we had 11 fathers total and 11 children. So it was technically 22 cases, but 11 hearings. And um, I would say it, it was a rubber stamp. Um, you know, good luck to you in your home country for all, but two sets of those cases. So four of the, um, the people that we represented were released, two fathers and two sons. And um, one was an indigenous language speaker, and he had a really good claim, but had not been able to articulate it because, again, he had been um, sitting there waiting for someone to help him articulate his claim for months. I think he was in since May. He was actually the one that had been moved to five different facilities. And then um, the other case that I mentioned that um, this man was very political and he had a really strong claim. But everyone else was trying to articulate their fear of returning. Um, and it was either gang-related or private-based crime, and you may have heard that this administration is trying to dial back any viability of those claims. Um, and so just people are summarily getting denied up front and not even being heard because 
you know, asylum officers are saying, that doesn't sound credible. It doesn't sound like it's your government coming to your door and attacking you directly, which is not the law, but that's the way that the law is being interpreted now. And so a lot of people are being <coughs> filtered up out front. And the judge that was hearing um, these cases, um, when we tried to get the expedited removal orders overturned, was brand new. And so he was very, very uh, vigilant about what yeah. his, his his completion goals would look like. Uh, I know that uh, we have an audience um, uh, and and one of us does have to leave <coughs> early, but I do want to give an opportunity. Uh, no, no, no. I, I, I just want, you know, I love for audience participation. It's always great for the program. So we'll open up early for questions from the audience and then come back. Um, I've, I've heard both you mention something that I hadn't heard before, at least as far as like a judicial system goes, and that's completion goals for judges. What exactly, I mean, I know what completion goals is in corporate America or like in a, in a J-O-B of some kind in office, but I've never heard that referred to for a judge. What does that, what does that mean? We have something like 400 immigration judges in this entire country, um, which is surreal in and of itself because I think they have something like 7,000 cases each. And so some of these cases we are able to administratively close or take off calendar until they're completed by the actual agency who's reviewing the benefits that has been taken away. And so now there's a completion goal standard where you have to complete something like 800 cases by the end of the year and you have one year to do this. And so where people would usually be waiting maybe a couple of years to hear back on whether they're eligible for benefits, it doesn't matter now. So that judge has the pressure of either deporting you, um, somehow terminating the case right. within one year. And that is unheard of, but it's to try to unclog the court system, which also doesn't comport with the way that they are ramping up enforcement because now we have even more cases being filed. So it's just feeding into that same well, system. It's like an ungodly number of cases a day, if you include just, you know, five working days a week. Yeah. Right. It's just in and out. Is there like a, some sort of other pressure besides the completion because of the administration and those types of goals for them? to hit certain markers on denials versus stays? So, that, I mean, unofficial or official? There's nothing published on that. Um, but we are seeing Attorney General Sessions refer himself cases where there are positive outcomes because he does have the discretion um, to review them himself, which right. didn't used to happen in other administrations. <coughs> but now Jeff Sessions is referring cases to himself if... There's a positive outcome. And sometimes it's just procedural. Like, for example, um, someone's applying for a benefit. So we want you to take the matter off the calendar. We'll report to you when we get an answer on the benefit. That way, this person's not driving from like Mendota, California, all the way to San Francisco right. and paying someone to do that every single time. Um, and we're not wasting judicial resources. But that's been taken away. So now judges cannot close out matters from the calendar. They can't terminate. Everything is kind of up to ICE now, if okay. ICE wants to terminate it. And that's the equivalent of like a DA, whether the DA wants to close this out or not, the okay. judge has no power. That's what that would look like in the okay. criminal justice And then they can system. be fired if they don't make their goals. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I won't hog the mic. I have more questions, but. <laughs> don't go away. The Michelle Meow Show continues right after this. 
Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on by joining our community. Each week, we send out an email that covers important things taking place in the Progressive Voices Network and throughout the progressive world. Be the first to know of upcoming shows, schedule changes, exclusive programming, and more. Simply go to ProgressiveVoices.com and sign up for our mailing list. It's that easy. ProgressiveVoices.com. Thanks for listening, and thanks for joining the Progressive Voices community. Weatherford BMW is where I spend a lot of my time. I love what I do, and I love the people I work with. But work's not the only thing I love. I love the everyday simple things in life, like mornings at my favorite coffee shop, taking walks with my dogs around Point Isabel, and spoiling my partner for a scenic but thrilling ride. That's the beauty of living the Bay Area dream. We're just being ourselves, living our authentic life. Live your authentic life, a special message by Weatherford BMW. Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? (laughs) Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. (laughs) <laughs> Question from the audience. So, Christina, you mentioned earlier, you know, the entire system has to be dismantled. And uh, I'm just wondering what would be a different system. Uh, at this point, even just coming up to the border and turning yourself in. Uh, I don't want to, you know what I mean? That's just kind of how they're starting to describe the act of migration now that it is already a crime to present yourself in this way to, to, to try to apply for asylum. Um, yeah, I just, you know, what, what, what are your thoughts in terms of a, a different system? So a lot of the detention portion of what's happening, the enforcement and detention revolves around money. Um, because it's aligned with a for-profit system. And that just keeps growing and growing as a juggernaut. We have more people detained than anywhere else in the world. Um, but especially like on the administrative matters, so immigration alone, that should never be happening. And like I said back up until 82, we had like 30 people on average in detention. Um, and there's nothing really that compels us to detain these people. And so that needs to be reimagined. So we're not spending $2 billion on this. Um, You know, if we're giving $30 billion in tax cuts to, you know, corporations, then maybe we can reimagine how we're using that money to run the immigration system. So there are actually people available to adjudicate benefits or to see if someone is eligible for these things that they're coming and surrendering and, and rightly so under the law applying for. Um, but so there's, there's the benefits arm of department of Homeland security and that's run on fees. And so when people pay fees that pays for the officers that adjudicate, and then there's the tax funded ice enforcement, customs and border protection and that, that side of it. And so a lot of that could be reimagined to actually be functional, um, but to also respond to what this country needs, which is people to actually just adjudicate immigration cases um, and then deal with it then instead of detaining everyone, depriving them of any access to an attorney, depriving them of any you know due process 
and then making money off of that and deporting them, Mm -hmm. which is what's happening now. Mm -hmm. I have a question for either or both of you. Um, And I guess it's kind of like before they get to our border, most of these people are traveling through Mexico, right? How are they treated in Mexico? What are Mexico's laws? Does Mexico, um, would, would Mexico allow them to apply for asylum there? And I'm also getting to then, so when they're rejected and deported from the United States, are they just like put back on the Mexico side? Or are they sent back to their country of origin? What, what kind of is going on south of the border? Yeah, so um, Mexico was actually approached to start turning people away in Mexico from Central America. And that's something that's been going on for a while, but there seems to be a renewed effort to deny people uh, entry into Mexico at all so that they're, they're like de facto enforcement before people come to the United States, which is where they're heading. Um, and a lot of the people fleeing Central America are fleeing because of things that the United States has done, like funding the people who, who created the genocide in um, all of the Central American countries and deporting only gang members so that the gangs took over their government during a civil war, you know, power vacuum. We have done these things to these countries. And so by criminalizing them from fleeing and trying to surrender for asylum here in the United States, it's just insane. Sorry, what was the second question? So the first question, what was what, what is Mexico doing? Yeah, uh, and then, so when people are deported. Oh, right. So when we deport people, we have to rely on a country to accept deportees. And so um, you have may, you may have heard like Laos, for example, will not accept people being deported from the United States. So we can't just put them on a plane and drop them off there. But if they're going to somewhere like Central America, um, they regularly do have flights where they work with the consulates to come into detention centers, issue them a passport so they could be put on a plane and deported to that country. I've actually been in court where there was a woman um, being deported to Russia and she asked the judge, what happens to me? Do they just open up the plane and, you know, parachute me out? And everyone in the court started laughing and the judge said, I honestly don't know the answer. I don't, I'm sure you have social services of some kind in Russia. And she said, I've never even been there. You know, it was just, it was, it's, the whole system needs to be reimagined. Mm-hmm. But if, if I can add something or actually ask Christina to talk about, there's a part of the system that I think it's overlooked and it's when, Let's say someone's fortunate enough to be um, released from the detention center. There's a timing when, okay, they're released, but can they work? How do they survive? Right. Yeah, you're prohibited from working if you don't have, um, you know, some sort of visa that would permit that. And a lot of people are in this situation where they're applying for some sort of benefit. And if you're applying for asylum, we have, so the, the case I told you about earlier where this man is released with his now six-year-old son, into California, he wants to work. He needs to work because there's no, he's not eligible for social services. He's not eligible for anything. His son is starting school. Um, And I had to let him know, if you do that, you're violating immigration law and this could ruin your chances of actually getting asylum. And so it's just this moment where you have to be creative and see what, you know, what kind of response can you get from the communities that they're living in? What reliance can they have on their family, that sort of thing, because our system is designed where they're in this impossible space where they cannot receive benefits. They're being blamed for taking all the benefits, but usually not eligible for any of these benefits. And then um, they can't work. 
And so they're in this weird space. Um, and that case, for instance, he can get a work permit once he's been waiting um, for asylum. After he files his as asylum application, he's been waiting six months, he can get a work permit. But he can't file that asylum application until they put his matter on the court docket, and they have not done that yet. So in all of these ways, he's just in purgatory waiting. And then that work permit, he has to get renewed every year. Am I right? Yes. Yeah. Jason, um, I'd love to hear kind of your your thoughts and experiences with the cases that you work on. You know, at this point, just crossing the border is a crime. And I'm just wondering, like, what are the arguments? What are they trying to argue? So you cross border, you're a criminal, you're being deported. And then what does that mean? Uh, or uh, cases that you worked on in which uh, you know, there are undocumented folks who are living in California. And as you had mentioned earlier, they're digging for old, old, <coughs> old cases, misdemeanors, anything. Mm-hmm. So um, we were talking kind of about this example earlier, but we didn't really go into details. Um, when you cross the border um, and you don't have, I guess, the correct cont- credentials to cross the border, you're committing a federal crime. So there's a lot of people who, when they cross the border and they are picked up, they're charged, they spend time in federal prison because it is a crime, even though it's like a lower end crime. From that point, once they are finished with their time in prison, they are sent to a detention facility. So they're re-detained. So they really are never out. Um, I have not represented any people that have um, got the uh, federal crime. But what I've been doing is we'll have clients that are in removal proceedings or um, some type of proceeding where now they're looking at their record. They're looking at their criminal background history to see are there any red flags. And so what I'm doing is looking at a plea that, so for example, I have a, a case that I'm working on and she took a bad plea. It was a really bad plea. And when you look at the facts, you're like, wait, you know, if you were this person and if someone sat down and said, hey, look, if you take this plea, you're going to do one of two things. You're either going to lose any chance to stay in the United States or your other option is go to trial. Well, what are you going to do? If, if you know these are your only two options, you're going to go to trial without a doubt because you can't afford to take the chance that knowing if I take this plea, yeah, I may get less time in, you know, state penitentiary, but hey, I'm going to lose my chance to stay here. Um, so aside from the facts, just not being strong against this person where I would have advised my clients something along the lines of, you know, I can't guarantee you an outcome, but this is a good case to put in front of a jury because really you're a victim. Um, so now what I'm doing is going back into court and filing motion to say, hey, Your Honor, when my client was in court, no one explained to her that these consequences were real. These consequences ha- are outside of the criminal justice system. And as a criminal defense attorney, I know criminal defense attorneys aren't telling their clients about that. We're not educated in, in, in immigration law. So just because you're looking at a form that says, hey, check this box initial here because it says you may have immigration consequences, that really doesn't tell you what's going on. I may die today, but that doesn't tell me that I'm going to die today. I have no reason to believe I'm going to die today. But they're trying to argue that this is enough notice, but it's not. So there are certain vehicles that you can use within the criminal um, um, penal code that allows you to go back and say, hey, if this person wasn't advised by one, the court, or two, their attorney, then we should be able to um, negate that plea 
overturn the conviction, go back and basically start over from where you were and give that person to either negotiate a different plea that's going to be more beneficial for immigration consequences or take it to trial like you should have done in the first place. And and since those times um, back in like the 80s and 90s, there have been codes that have been enacted that make it an obligation on not only the criminal defense attorney, but the prosecution themselves to keep immigration consequences in consideration when they're offering pleas. And a lot of them don't do that either. So there's just a lot of misjustice going on in the system because they're like, yeah, you can't be so narrow sighted saying, hey, you know, here's, you know, plea to this because you won't spend any time in jail. Well, that doesn't matter because one, you're still going to be detained. So you're still really in jail. And two, you're going to forfeit any chance that you have in the future at getting status. Um. I, I want to add to that. So one, California is doing amazing things to protect people and trying to disentangle the criminal justice system from the immigration system and making sure that the, I know the client he's talking about came when she was 10 months old and she has a special needs son. And there are all of these things that she never would have imagined that now she would be facing deportation after living here her entire life. But because of this plea, she's facing this one, prolonged detention in the immigration system, but two, like no one ever advised her that this could even be part of the criminal justice system turning into her deportation and separating her from her family. Um, but another thing I wanted to mention was earlier you said it's a, a federal crime to enter the United States, and that's kind of the narrative that the Trump administration has taken, but if you are coming here and trying to apply for asylum, that is how you're supposed to do it. And so it's really a catch-22 where you have to come here without documentation to apply for, I mean, you can apply for a visa, but most people are not eligible. So they come here and they try to apply for that and then they're criminalized for it. And that, that also is pretty new um, where that was not being utilized in the past administration. Was not being utilized. Is that kind of like the child separation policy where right. it was kind of there and Obama, tough as he was on immigration, uh, didn't do as much, but then Trump Yes. Yeah. So that was that the zero tolerance policy that we heard about where um, it was supposed to serve as a deterrent for people coming to surrender themselves and flee from their country, which there is no deterrent for that. When there are women and children fleeing from a country, they are the least mobile demographic. There is no deterrent for that. Um, But they imagined this scaring people from coming to apply for asylum here in the United States. And so they decided to um, start actually charging people in these um, mass hearing rooms, like 40 people at a time, you all entered without any documentation. This is a federal misdemeanor, how do you plead? And then everyone would plead guilty just so they could get out and see their children again. Mm. And so it was a way to criminalize people that were coming to ask for asylum. And, and I also think and I don't have, I can't prove this, but I think part of the, what they're trying to accomplish by denying people asylum is so that they go, um, they're sent back to their original country and they spread the word like, hey, you know, you can't come to the United States anymore because they're not trying to help. I mean, I sat in front of a judge who said, you know, your fear of death, even though I find it credible that you're probably going to die when you go home, the United States doesn't recognize that type of fear because it's a gang that's putting on that fear. So good which luck is, to you. Which is His inaccurate. <laughs> and, and, and I just have a hard time, you know, on the moral side. I mean, like, you know, you're sending someone to their death. They've expressed to you the fear that they have. And a problem that likely the United States created ourselves when we started sending, you know, gangs back into certain regions. So we create this problem. 
And now you're saying, well, we, we won't let you escape the problem that we created. It just doesn't make any sense. Yeah. So we're winding down. Um, we'll give anybody a, a, a chance to ask a question before I ask the last question. What can those of us who do not work in immigration law do to help? I think people that work in immigration law are a very small part of the solution, actually. And it's that everyone could be very vocal that this is unacceptable, that we are detaining people actually on the same sites that we had internment camps. Like, it's just history repeating itself. We won't tolerate this. We don't want our tax dollars going to detain children, families, immigrants that haven't committed crimes. I mean, this is not what we are here for, and that's not representative of who we are as a nation. Um, there's, for people that are new to like ho contacting their congressperson, I like ResistBot. <laughs> um, if you Google ResistBot, there's like some, there is a means to text this number, and then they tell you who all of your representatives are, and then you tell your representative, this is what you should push a bill for, you know, make sure that this doesn't happen on your watch and hold them accountable. I know uh, back when like Indivisible was just getting started and such, yeah. a lot of the advice was not just to email or, or uh, uh, text or Facebook, uh, you know, a complaint or a request to your person, but actually when they're holding a town hall, show up. Yes. Because mm -hmm. that, that is magnified, you know, quite a bit. Mm -hmm. And if I can add, I think, and this is probably uh, an outcome of our experience too, the organizations that you've heard of that are receiving funding, ask for transparency. Ask where the money's going. You know, when you donate, you want to know how this money is helping the cause. Because a lot of times you donate money, then it's like, okay, well, they must be doing something right. No, stay involved by asking them, you know, demanding that they produce some kind of report that shows how the money's being spent or, you know, what they're doing to, to better the situation. Yeah, we shouldn't live in a country where we have to do a GoFundMe for children to have attorneys in a detention facility. Um, I, I would say if there is anything you can get behind, there is an organization, uh, Kids in Need of Defense, KIND, um, and they're local here in San Francisco, and they actually have a policy arm in D.C., so I like to look at what they're doing to push for due process for children um, and for the families. They're great. And that was a great question to segue to my last question, and that really has to do with I mean, we, we, we've seen our communities rally together. We've seen the power of our voices collectively when we care about an issue. And when, you know, the media started reporting on this, we saw that Americans do care deeply about this, this issue. So there is, there is, there is hope. And I think the, the big question is how do we hold on to that hope and and continue you know to to make change because I, I even asked you this if you knew what people thought after they gave to or these organizations that were meant to help with reuniting the families or for immigration causes like where where do they think these families are where what what do you think the they think that you know what happens to these families and you've answered that for us here so um and, and my question isn't it really a question, but also to open it for discussion, because even for myself, I mean, showing up here for a talk like this is part of it. I think that we need to tell people the truth. We need to talk to our family members and our friends and tell them the truth of what's actually happening and keep them engaged and activated. I think that we need to take back the narrative of immigration. After all, we are a nation of immigrants. We're all immigrants. 
right? And that um, we stop the the lies that are being spread that, you know, immigrants are criminals, people who come here to take and take and take or to break the law. So, so we'd love to hear from both of you as we close out and that thought. How do we ho- hold on to the hope and actually create the change or the reform that we've been talking about for so long? We need a change of leadership. <laughs> <laughs> I think we start there. Um, and to demand transparency, like Jason touched on, because you can throw all of the money at the world, uh, in the world at these smaller solutions, but you have a $2 billion industry that you're competing with to keep detaining more people. And the way you do that is you criminalize them in this country and you get people on board with detaining them because they've entered the wrong way, you know, um, that's the narrative. And so I think we start with our, our own circles and how we talk about immigration and then, um, and then we have to change the leadership so that people that are making the budget decisions with our tax dollars and people that are actually developing these systems of, um, you know, immigration due process and that kind of thing are the, are the right people for those positions. Yeah. And I, uh, just to kind of piggyback on what Christina said, I think it starts local where we just keep the conversation going like we're doing today. You know, in America right now, there's so many things you can get distracted by because there's so much wrong going on. But we can't let it die out. We just have to keep talking about it, bringing awareness to the issues that are ongoing. Um, and I think that will propel people to stay interested. And then, again, I'm going to say it over and over again, transparency, transparency, transparency. Without it, we'll never really know what's, what goes on unless you go yourself. It took me to go all the way to Carn City, Texas, to really feel what was going on. I mean, I had an emotional reaction seeing the videos, but it's different when you see it face to face. And if more organizations were, you know, doing videos about, you know, this is what's going on on a day-to-day basis here. Hey, come watch, because that's the way we can live it without being there just vicariously. Um, so I think exposure and transparency is, is a good way to go. And also, um, the chances are you have people in your own communities that are going through this. And so if you can find ways to support them locally, especially the families that are unable to work while they're waiting for that the six month period, they're waiting for their asylum applications um, to kick in. I think that's a great way to support just on a, on a grassroots level. Yeah. Let's give a round of applause for our two speakers today, Christina McKibben and Jason Size. Christina, Jason, thank you again for all the work that you're doing. I imagine that um, it will continue and there's so much more and we'll have you back on the show. Uh, share the the word, share the podcast if you can. It will air today on Progressive Voices Network at four o'clock, but Commonwealth Club will post it up on the Michelle Meow page, which is commonwealthclub.org slash MMS. And you look for the podcast there and share it. Uh, and thank you to the Commonwealth Club for holding space for this discussion. The Commonwealth Club is a unique organization that brings together people from a variety of backgrounds to explore important issues as a community. Sooner or later, everyone worth hearing comes to our stage. From Marga Gomez to Richard Chamberlain, from James Hormel to Kate Kendall, leading thinkers, activists, politicians, and artists have come to the Commonwealth Club of California. Ted Olson and David Boys came here to discuss their winning legal strategy for same-sex marriage. Jason Collins talked about gay athletes. The Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence discussed activism and good works. Actor and director Rob Reiner explained how he got Hollywood behind same-sex marriage. Barney Frank described what it's like to be gay at the highest levels of Washington. 
From healthcare reform to transgender rights, from immigration to gay-owned businesses, it's all at the Commonwealth Club. And that's still just a portion of the 450 programs we present every single year with new programming nearly every single day. Be a part of the conversation. Learn more at commonwealthclub.org, download our free app in iTunes, and join us in person the next time you're in San Francisco. The Commonwealth Club of California puts you face-to-face with today's thought leaders. Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on by joining our community. Each week, we send out an email that covers important things taking place in the Progressive Voices Network and throughout the progressive world. Be the first to know of upcoming shows, schedule changes, exclusive programming, and more. Simply go to ProgressiveVoices.com and sign up for our mailing list. It's that easy. ProgressiveVoices.com. Thanks for listening, and thanks for joining the Progressive Voices community.